Well, good morning. Good to see a, a lot of new faces this morning. So either I guess you're, means you're visiting, you have family here, or you're like, new to our community. So it's good to, good to see visitors all the way from Tri-Cities <laughs> and then others as well. So uh, my name is Jack. I'm the lead pastor here at Bethany Northeast. And uh, we're in a series right now called Sustainable Faith. We're in the third week of that. But And yes, I have a broken hand, by the way. And somebody's saying something. I broke it in a cycling accident. Surprise. Like, <laughs> so it's a little awkward. So just kind of go with me, robot. Um, <laughs> all right. We're in a series right now called Sustainable Faith. We're looking at um, these spiritual practices that the church has engaged in for the last couple thousand years now um, as ways to uh, cultivate faith. So I guess based on this idea that it's not good enough just to pray and receive Christ on a single day in your life and then call it, you know, like, hey, I got faith, you know, like you got a cold or something. The idea is that faith, as the Bible describes it to us, needs to be uh, exercised. You need to work on your faith. Uh, Jesus, or Paul says, work out your faith with fear and trembling. And so the idea being that um, there are practices in our lives that if we, we pursue them, we engage in them, will help our faith grow and uh, give us the, uh, the endurance to have faith over the long haul. So we're looking at some of those uh, in the, the coming weeks. Today we're looking at the practice of Sabbath, as the, the reading highlighted. Last week we looked at the practice of Bible reading, or kind of Bible intake. It's a foundational practice. And so you may have, if you weren't here last week, you may have seen a, a little card at the door. It's kind of a yellowish color, and it has the book of Luke on that. And so I invited our community to be reading the Gospel of Luke over this series, like a six-week reading thing. So if you don't have a reading plan right now, we're going to be either reading from or teaching from the Gospel of Luke during this series. Um, I would invite you to grab one of those cards, or if you go back there after the service, there's not one there, reach out to me and I'll get you that plan so you can kind of read along with us. Um, sometimes that'll sync up with what we're doing on Sunday, sometimes not. So there you have it. Let's take a moment to pray together, and then um, we'll dive into God's Word. God, thanks for uh, the chance we have now to open your Word together in community. Um, and so, uh, God, you, you say in Scripture that where two or more are gathered, you're with us. And so thank you that you're with us. Thanks that you've been with us all morning, that you'll continue to be with us as the morning goes on, as the day goes on. Um, as you're with us, God, would you open each of our hearts um, to new revelation? Would you open our lives to the areas um, where we need encouragement and correction? Would you open up our community's collective life to be shaped by you uh, so that as we move out of this place throughout this week, we'd be a presence of, of hope in the city of Seattle and Lake City specifically? Thanks, Jesus, for this. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so some years ago, speaking of Sabbath, oh, and by the way, one more thing, um, we're kind of looking at a couple practices a week. I'm noticing as we're getting to this, that's like two sermons, so that's been hard. Uh, but the idea being we're looking at a practice that's really for us, intended for us, and then a practice that's intended for others. And so today, the practices that are paired together are Sabbath, which is this idea that's really designed for us, uh, for our own restoration. We'll talk about that. And then the practice for others is, is prayer for others or Sometimes you've heard it called intercessory prayer. And so I'm going to speak, speak most of the time this morning about Sabbath. And then as an application point, really at the end, and you, you probably will notice this from the, the teaching in Luke 6, we'll talk about prayer for others as a, a way to engage in Sabbath, okay? So just go with that. And then there, I could do a whole sermon or a series on prayer for others. There's 
like books and stuff about that, but we won't have time for that this morning. So that's for another day. Um, years ago, this author named Judas Shulovitz, somebody was joking I had a whole library with me. I just wanted to bring the book up with me. I'm not going to actually start reading from this. But she wrote an article in, she writes for the New York Times Magazine. And uh, I used to get that. And um, she wrote an article called Bring Back the Sabbath years ago. This is like early, nine, or early 2000s. Really amazing article. I, you can Google that, Bring Back the Sabbath and read it. It's a really fascinating article. She followed that up with this book just a couple years ago called The Sabbath World, Glimpses of a Different Order of Time. And it's, I'm, a, I'm into sociology, so if you, you know, you like reading books about um, faith stuff, but that's not really by a Christian author. She's a, she's a Jewish author. She was raised in New York City um, in a secular Jewish home. And, uh, you know, she wrote the book and the article, you know, she, she's kind of writing it for the average professional, like New York City or Seattle professional, secular person. And she resisted uh, her kind of Jewish roots growing up. You know, most, some of us even did this with our Christian roots. We kind of left kind of our origin, family of origin, left the church, went to college, did our thing, and now we're starting to come back that. But she resisted that, and then she started to experience this phenomenon that she describes in the book and in her article called Time Sickness. And here's how she describes time sickness from her book. She says, my mood, this is in her kind of young professional years, my mood would darken every weekend until by Saturday afternoon. Now remember, Jewish Sabbath is Saturday. So picture this is Sunday for you. By Saturday afternoon, I would be unresponsive and morose. Uh, My normal routine involved brunch with friends and other things, watching the Seahawks doing these things. That made me feel impossibly restless, she says. So then I began to do something that as a teenager, I I profoundly put off. I was put off by, but I could have never imagined wanting to do as an adult. I began dropping by the nearby synagogue, or you might say I began dropping by the local church on the corner of 123rd and Sandpoint Way. I don't know if that's you this morning. And finally, as I started to do that, I developed a theory for my condition. If formerly people suffered from the Sabbath, which means all the regulations, I was now suffering from the lack thereof. Uh, there is ample evidence, then she goes down to say, that our relationship to work is out of whack. Uh, let me argue, in her book, she says, on behalf of an institution that has kept workaholism in reasonable check for thousands of years. Most people mistakenly believe uh, that all you have to do to stop working is not work. (laughs) But the inventors of the Sabbath understood that that, it was much more complicated than that. You can't just shift down easily. This is why the Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths, she says, were so exactingly intentional. And listen to this. The rules of the Sabbath did not exist to torture the faithful, interrupting ceaseless. Instead, they were there to interrupt ceaseless striving so that we could step back and, and see how God had created us to be. So what she's saying is this, in spite of the fact that she's recognizing the abuse of the Sabbath, you know, maybe you've experienced that abuse, that our relationship to work in society is so out of whack that anyone who thinks you're just going to be able to get rest by simply knocking off whenever you feel like it is hopelessly naive. You're just naive that we have, we have become such an, a, a culture of workaholics, and I'll talk about this in a moment, that, that maybe you felt this way on the weekends. You just feel like you're, you can't get enough rest. Like it, one day is not good enough, and I don't know how to get it. And I, I can't stop thinking about Monday, or I can't stop thinking about that email that I didn't get on Friday, I didn't get on Friday or didn't respond to. I mean, is that anybody in the room? There's a few of you that are honest. Okay, 
So the ability to, to deeply rest is a, is a life or death thing. It's a life or death thing. Uh, no one can go without it. You can't go without a certain amount of rest, but it's, it's not natural is what she's saying. It's not a natural thing to just rest. It's not simple. It's, it's difficult. It takes discipline. It takes practice. And that discipline or that practice for generations has been called the Sabbath. And that's why we're talking about it this morning. So the Sabbath, as many of you know, is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. It's given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And amongst the ten, it's the most unique. Uh, It's the the longest. If you read it, it appears twice, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. It's also the only one of the ten with both a vertical as well as a horizontal dimension. And here's what I mean by that. It it, it is about both how, how to cultivate a healthy relationship with God, talks about that in the Sabbath commandment, as well as our neighbor's. Okay, so read that sometime. The first three commandments are really about how to cultivate a relationship with God, you know. And then the the last six are about how to relate to your neighbors by not doing some things or doing some things. This one involves both of those. And and because of that, many scholars describe the Sabbath as the glue or the binding that holds the Ten Commandments together. So if you remember the story of Moses, he was given two tablets, left and right tablet, these big stone, you know, Charlton Eston tablets. And the idea being that when he carried those down, the Sabbath commandment was actually the, the binding, if you can think of it like a book, that held them together. It, it spans both left and right tablet. And yet considering our, our really ambivalent relationship toward rest, we don't rest well. Or if we do, we like to do it on our own terms, right? Like it's called vacation. <laughs> and if, if, if we're forced to rest, Sabbath, it's like your in-laws coming and staying with you, right? I'll do it only because I have to, right? I'm, but I'm not going to like it. <laughs> That's kind of like rest for us or Sabbath. So we have an ambivalent relationship, a complicated relationship to work. And because of that, a lot of scholars are saying this, um, this binding that has long held the commandments together has become frayed and is beginning to break. All the other things will fall apart without this, this glue or this binding. As St. Augustine once said um, famously, and I put this quote, I think, in the top of that bulletin, uh, our hearts are restless until they rest in the Lord. You'll, you'll be restless forever without this commandment. It's the most essential of the 10. And so today, and we, as Shula says in her article, um, we need to bring the, the Sabbath back. We need to understand it. We need to restore it and, and our understanding as well as our practice of it. So to help us with that, I want to just invite us to consider a few questions this morning all around the Sabbath. And then, like I said, we'll kind of pair prayer for others as an application to this. And those questions are simple. Why we need Sabbath, um, where we get Sabbath, and then how do we practice Sabbath, okay? Why we need it, where we get it, how we practice it, okay? And then um, you'll see I didn't put it like an outline in your bulletin because that's going to be your homework, okay? So last week I gave you a reading plan. This week, a little preview of what you're going to get to do, but you can take notes on there too, <laughs> okay? So if you need a place to do notes. So why we need it, how we get it, or where we, where we, where we get it, and then how we do it, Okay. So first, why we need it. And uh, I'm going to really speak from Exodus chapter 20 on this point, okay? Which is where the Sabbath commandment appears the first time. And it's verses 9 to 11, but you don't need to turn there because you probably know this. Um, before we go to that, though, Shulevitz's book and other books as well have really got me thinking about um, our relationship to work. You know, that quote I read. And our relationship, the relationship between work and rest. And what I've really been continually reminded of, and this isn't going to be like a newsflash, you're not going to want to tweet this out, but 
work has come to define us, right, in our culture. Like, we are a nation of workaholics. I mean, hang out at your local pub, go to a cocktail party. If anybody's ever done, had gone to your 10-year class reunion or your 20-year class reunion, like, what's one of the first questions that you get? What do you do, right? Or where do you work if you know the person a little better? And uh, another question you often get, if you know the person even better, is, how are you, right? Like, really, how are you? And implied in those questions, what do you do, how are you, uh, is (laughs) kind of an indictment of your identity. Somebody once told me that in China, the polite answer to that question, how are you, is, this is, if you go to China, this is, I'm very busy, thank you. That's always the right answer. Yeah. Because if you're very busy, then you must be fine, right? Uh, If you have more to do than you can actually do in the day, the list never gets done, but only longer, then you must be very fine. But not only in China, <laughs> right here. And that's the deal. If, you, if somebody asks you, how are you? What do you do? Well, you know, right now, I'm not doing a lot. <laughs> I'm actually really good because I've got a lot of downtime. They'd be like, loser! You know, that's kind of the idea today. For millions and millions of people, busyness is like the way of life. That's kind of our new thing. So like this busy, like crazy world we live in. So we say, how are you? And you go, busy like crazy, but I love it. How are you? You know, it's like this thing we do. And the key there is deeply embedded in those questions are just a hundred more that go with it that are really under the surface that are, that are like, are you valuable? Do you have meaning? Are you worth something? Right? And so the question, and the question of value and worth is a question of, a, of, of definition. It's not just how are you, it's who are you? That's the question. Uh, are you important? Do you, are you making a difference? Are you changing things, right? Uh, it's, and it's the sort of question that is going to pester us every day if we let it. You lay in bed at night. Am I, am I making a difference? Am I doing something significant? Am I changing the world? Is, is that, am I just that movie office space? Like, am I becoming that, you know? Or am I doing, am I doing something significant? And we find it gnawing on us until that's all we can think about, Right? Now, is it any wonder that researchers, as they study this, find that the leading, the leading cause, by far the leading cause of heart disease, you know what it is? Stress. Because <laughs> you're laying up at night, worried about that question. And the, the, one of the major contributors of obesity, diabetes, is what? Lack of balance in your work and work-life balance. That's it. It's just, like you're just so out of whack. So we're eating more fast food. <laughs> We're exercising less than any generation in history. We, we're operating on this cost-benefit analysis with our time, like time is a commodity, has to be spent well, you know, weighed against productivity, you know. And we have devices now that do that for us. Uh, I mean, this busy-like-crazy ethic is literally killing us. Now, many of you in the room are probably thinking, yeah, but if I, I do work a lot. You got me. I work 60 hours this week, 70 hours this week. I do. But if I don't, <laughs> there are, you know, you work at Amazon or any corporation now in Seattle, there is a line around the block to take my spot. And I just, I'm in an entry-level job, you know? Uh, and, and if I don't do that, there's no way I could live in this city. I have to work. I have to work hard. What are you saying, Jack, you know? Uh, and I, I want to affirm that those are valid concerns, actually. And I also want you to know that the work you do, whether it's part-time, full-time, stay-at-home, overtime, doesn't matter, 
the biblical witness to work is remarkably positive. If you read about work in the Bible, it's one of the principal activities in which we engage in our relationship with God. It is. So the Bible begins with God working, which sets the Bible and the, the God of the Bible apart from every other ancient Near Eastern like, creation story you can read. Our God, if you, if you read those other stories, is the only God that actually works. All the other gods make humans or other creatures do their work for them. So that's interesting. Jesus talks about doing the work of his Father. In the Gospels, Jesus worked. Uh, Paul attests to the value of work calling us co-workers with him in the work of the Gospel. We are God's workmanship, created to do the good works he's prepared for us in advance. Like, work is positive. So, and we see this affirmation of positive affirmation of work in the Sabbath commandment, in the Exodus 20 version of that. Here's what it says, Exodus 20, verses 9 and 11. Six days you're going to labor, or you should labor, do all your work. And again, it says in verse 11, six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. Okay? So there's work right there. And that reference, you, if you know your Bible story, you know this, it, it harkens back to Genesis chapter 1, the, the very beginning, like I mentioned, where God is busy with the work of creation. Six days he created Six days he worked. And the end of each day, remember this, what does God do? Every day, it's good. Every day God stops, it's good. In other words, God rested at the end of each day. Now, don't get lost in this question of God resting as if God was tired at the end of each day and needed to take a nap, okay? God's not going to get tired like you or I do. That's not the point of God stopping and saying it's good. Instead, realize that at the end of each day, God paused declared the day good, and then continued. So there's a, in the first sense, the Sabbath commandment, listen to this, is about rhythm. It's about practicing a rhythm. That's what, you can't, going back to Shulev, it's this thing, you can't downshift easily. You have to be in a rhythm. Life is meant to be seasons. There's hours and there's, there's things. The rhythm is about, that's what life is about. So practice, the Sabbath would say, a rhythm of working and resting. Six days, work, Seventh day, Sabbath. Work, rest. Work, rest. Work, rest. Okay? So the Bible is teaching that Sabbath is all about rhythm. And, and this is so key for us today. Th- just really quickly, because we live in this highly technologized world. Like a world that's being run literally by machines. L- literally by machines. This room is being run by machines. Uh, which is maybe something to celebrate. Like I love this idea of an internet of things love to have a smart home. I love the idea of smart cities, connected cars, wearables. All that's very fascinating to me. I know a lot of you are working in that area, but listen to this. Here's the key as it relates to Sabbath. Machines don't need to sleep. Like, they run more efficiently when they don't sleep with the proper maintenance, as far as I understand it. You, you can run a machine 24-7. You can. Sometimes you need to power it down and reboot it because it has a bug in there, but whatever. You, here's the key. You cannot run a person 24-7. It's impossible. You can't run a creature 24-7. It's impossible. You will kill it. And so we need a rhythm of work and rest, which is why God puts work in, re- in direct relationship to rest. It's not 24-7. Uh, I don't even think it's 24-6. Somebody wrote a book that's called 24-6. Like, try that. You'll kill yourself. But there's a rhythm to it. Work, rest, work, rest, work, rest. Okay, so that's the first thing. Six days labor, one day rest. But it's more than just rhythm. So it is about rhythm. Sabbath is about rhythm. In addition to rhythm, Sabbath requires depth. Listen to this. Uh, 
you can't just kind of work, rest, work, rest, work, rest. Sleep experts will tell you this. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, in order to really get, I'm experiencing this right now with this cast because I'm not sleeping super well. Um, in order to get the right amount of sleep, it doesn't, you don't add up all your hours that you slept in any 24-hour period and call that a good night. <laughs> sleep experts tell you that you need a certain depth or quality of sleep to really be rested. It's called REM, right? Rapid eye movement sleep. And you need eight hours of a period of time, block of time generally, to get into that zone, get rest, and come out of that zone, right? And if it's interrupted, so you can't just take eight one-hour naps and call it a night's sleep. It's not going to work. You're going to wake up, just like I have been, exhausted. Like look in the mirror and go, man, wow, I look really tired. I hope people don't think I'm tired because I, I am. <laughs> and uh, so you have to go into this deep sleep. So it's not just the amount of sleep, it's the depth of sleep. It's not the amount of rest, rhythm of rest. It's the depth of rest. So listen to this, uh, what it says in Genesis chapter 1. Again, the Sabbath commandment is rooted in that story and would have you think about it. At the end of that story in Genesis 1, actually the beginning of Genesis 2, this is what it says. So God's created the world, six days, work, rest, work, rest, work, rest. And then in Genesis 2, at the very end of it, he says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd done. And so the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it, he rested from the work of creating that he'd done. Do you hear it? Day seven, we're told that God stopped. So there's a rhythm to it. Work, rest, work, rest, work, rest. And then there's a stoppage. Not because he got tired. Like I said, God doesn't get tired. I don't believe God gets tired. God, God stopped because he was finished. Creation was complete. He was done. Now, somebody in the room saying, yeah, of course, it's not an eighth day. Like, that's the, sad, that's the story, right? It's only seven days long. God stopped. Yeah, that's all true. But let me ask you this question. Why did God stop? Is it because it was just the story was done? Like, that's, it's just a seven-day story, right? Or did God stop because there's something else that led him to rest? Think about it. What led God to stop at the end of the sixth day, going to the seventh day? And here's the answer. It's actually in the last verse of Genesis 1. God saw... This is just before he stopped. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. So remember, six days, work, rest, work, rest, work, rest. And all those days, God said, what? It's good. Why does God need to say it the seventh day? It's very good. And here's, this is, I mean, this is, this is the deal. It's really important. This pause at the end of that last day was the pause of stepping, stepping back from the, from the work of creation and saying, wow, that's excellent. That's, that's awesome. I mean, like, I'm done. Done. It's, it's good. It's very good. And that's a, it's a pause of satisfaction and admiration and appreciation that led God into this deep Sabbath rest. In, in other words, our ability to rest is directly tied to the, the satisfaction we experience in our work. Directly tied to it. If you're not experiencing satisfaction in your work, you're not going to be able to rest. Our ability to step back and say, man, it's good. <laughs> it's this critical step for us. And you, if you're not able to get there, um, you're never going to be able to experience the deep rest God's made you for. 
And by the way, many, or I'd say most of us in the room are not experiencing this. And I'm going to put myself in the boat with you. I struggle, like really struggle, with stepping back and saying, that's enough. Because I always, there's got to be another email I can send. I don't have a zero inbox yet. Um, there's more, better words. I've got words. I'm, I've got to find a better word, you know? Uh, there's got to be another phone call I could make, another person I could meet with. I saw these great people on Sunday. I've got to, I want to meet them all, you know? I'm like a Labrador, you know? I want to just go do that. Why can't we step back and say, you know what? Sunday's done. I saw a few people. I didn't, my job's not to see them all or talk to them all. It's good. I'm going to rest now. Why can't we say it's good? I mean, what's driving us so hard that we cannot let go, even though we know it's killing us. Go back to all those sleep studies. Go back to all those obesity studies. Well, Shulovitz, who wrote this book I showed you, she has this really good quote in there that says this. When the Sabbath was still sacred, not only did the drudgery, that only did drudgery give way to festivity and family gatherings and occasional worship, but she says this. The machinery, when the Sabbath was still sacred, was still something we celebrated, the machinery of self-censorship shut down stilling the, the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. Let me say that again. When the Sabbath was still sacred, when it was something we celebrated, the machinery of self-censorship shut down. Something inside of us shut down. And, and it's still this inner murmur of self-reproach. The eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. That's, so that's the deal right there. You know what she's talking about? She's saying that on the one hand, there's your external work that just feels like it never ends. I always got more to do, right? Of course you do, right? We're all, well, a lot of us are professionals or we're stay-at-home parents. There's always another thing to do, right? There's that. But then (laughs) there's this deeper work, this deeper problem we're all experiencing. The work underneath the work, the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. This inner machinery, this, and what that is, is this need to prove yourself to yourself, to others, that your work, it means something, that you mean something, that you're valuable. And that just gnaws at you, and that makes you incredibly weary. doesn't allow you to get into this REM mode of rest and good. It's all good. And then you wake up, and you're just tired. You're exhausted. Uh, you remember the, the only good Rocky movie? <laughs> the first Rocky movie? The only good one. And we can have an argument about that, but I believe it. And this question comes to Rocky at one point, like, why are you so driven? You remember him? I mean... And why are you doing all this work? And why are those trumpets blazing every time you're running through the streets of Philadelphia? You know, like, why is the soundtrack following you around all the time? And like, as he goes up the art museum steps, and why are you working so hard? Remember his answer? Maybe you don't, because you don't care. But um, he says this, I want to go the distance, because then I'll know I'm not a bum. So our hero, and this is the hero in a lot of our movies, is being driven by the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach, He's working so hard, and that's why he makes it to the top, but that's also why he burns out. And that's why Sylvester Stone looks the way he does today. And why all the rest of the movies why all the rest of the movies are just awful. They are, they're pitiful movies. So uh, because you're always trying to prove yourself. You're never gonna you have to make sure you're seen, recognized, valued. You're always trying to make sure you're advancing your career, closing deals, selling, selling, always be selling right? Do you get here and you need to be selling? Are you comfortable? Can you come here and say, hey, I'm, I'm not working? 
I mean, that's hard for me. Just say, I'm here. Just me. Just showing up. I'm resting. The, the work is never enough. It's never enough for us. Uh, and so you're never enough. You're stretched thin. You're exhausted. You're anxious. You're filled with inadequacy and inferiority and insecurity, all these ins. And the key is all the vacations in the world, all the weeks on the beach in Hawaii, all the Sundays spent on the couch watching the Seahawks are not going to still that deep inner murmur. It's not going to happen. You're not going to get the rest because you're filled with something deeper than that. Self-doubt, worry, anxiety, fear. The work beneath the work, you need to step back from that. You need to be able to step back from that to get the rest you need. And that's why God gave us the Sabbath as a barrier for us to say, hey, there's one day a week. Park the, leave the car parked in the garage. Turn off your internet. <laughs> Look your kids in the eye. Make a home-cooked meal. Give yourself space and time just to step aside and just not listen to all that crap, okay? And just silence this incessant murmur of our world. So that's why we need Sabbath. <laughs> because all of us, all of us in the room, I don't care who you are, we are all being driven by something deep within us that's just winding us up so tight we're going to snap. We've never needed it more, okay? So that's why we need it. That's the bad news, I guess you could say. <laughs> Let's talk about where we get it, okay? Because I think this is, this is really important for us to connect the two. And uh, this will come from the Deuteronomy 5 version of the Sabbath, as well as a, a passage I would encourage you to read at some point from Hebrews chapter 4, okay? Um, in fact, you could turn to Hebrews 4 with me if you wanted. I'm going to talk about it for a moment. But um, you know why we need it. <laughs> but you're probably thinking, man, we have, I have so many associations with the Sabbath. Uh, and many of our associations are just simply rules and regulations. Um, or we just come to understand it as, like I said, a day off, a day when you turn off the internet, you know, a day when you don't walk or watch sports or anything. Uh, and actually, that's interesting because what that highlights is our popular notions of Sabbath have be begun to define it more than our biblical notions. Because if you read about it in the Bible, it's none of those things. Which is why this story in Luke 6 that we read is so interesting, okay? Because uh, the, these guys come to Jesus and uh, they say, hey, why, do you do, why are you and your disciples doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, the law they're referring to is not the Ten Commandments. They're not talking about the Sabbath commandment. Absolutely not. Because it says nothing about healing or eating bread in that commandment, if you've ever read it. Nothing. In fact, the law they're referring to is what's later called the Talmud. It's an ex exposition of the Jewish law. Um, you might call it like a commentary. In that law, there are 39 main categories of work that may not be done on the Sabbath. And from the, day, the moment it begins till the moment it ends, unless the life of an individual is at risk, okay? Uh, and there are countless subcategories of those categories and then permutations of those, and this is what they include. Sowing, plowing, reaping, harvesting, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking. I don't know if any of you are going to bake. I baked some last night. Winnowing, all these things. Cleaning, don't clean your house. Combing, you can't comb your hair. Dying, spinning, stretching threads, making loops, weaving, separating threads. Tying and untying knots, so you have to wear slip-ons. Uh, Jan did it. Minor slip-ons, because I can't tie shoes right now. <laughs> Tearing, tapping, slaughtering, no hunting, Blake. Uh, skinning, tanning, smoothing, all this stuff. 
extinguishing the fire, kindling the fire, striking the final hammer, and carrying. Now, carrying, by the way, what constitutes carrying? Um, just carrying my beer from the fridge to the couch to watch the Seahawks count? Does carrying my son around the backyard as we play run, chase, hide count? Does carrying my Bible up here, and many of you carried Bibles this morning, count? What constitutes carrying? I mean, do you hear it? It's absolutely, and I skipped a bunch, absolutely ridiculous, this law they're talking about. They're trying to pin Jesus to. And, and he's saying the Sabbath was not meant to be that way. You've completely lost it, which is why he responds the way he does in Luke 6.3. Have you ever read, tells him a little story, have you ever read what David did with his mighty men? When they were hungry, they entered the house of God, sanctuary, temple. They took the consecrated bread. He, he ate what is, is lawful only for priests to eat, and then he gave some to his friends. <laughs> what do you think of that? <laughs> Put your law on that and smoke it. You know, it's like, and what's interesting is he takes an incident from 1 Samuel 21 where David, he's running for his life. Uh, he goes into the tabernacle, sanctuary, this place in Jerusalem. And there's this place in the sanctuary. Picture like we put our communion bread up here. There's a place at the entrance of the tabernacle where they keep this place this, called the showbread. They send it out. It's a symbol. Not meant to be touched, eaten, disturbed. It's a symbol of God's presence and provision of manna in the wilderness. That's all. And it's probably moldy. Well, actually, I don't, probably not because it doesn't have any leaven in it or whatever. So it's sitting there and it's a sacred symbol. And here's the key. You're not allowed to eat it. You're not allowed to touch it. You're not allowed to disturb it. And David and his men did all those things. They ate it. They touched it. They disturbed it. And they devoured it. <laughs> and of course, Jesus says, like he's never condemned for it. It's all good. They were hungry. And, and God never said there was anything wrong with what David did. Read 1 Samuel 21 sometime. Never anything wrong. Not just Jesus. God never, David, you bad boy. You know, he never did that. Uh, he was never condemned. And, and what Jesus is doing is inviting them, inviting us to think about the implications of that. It's profound. In other words, if the Sabbath and the worship regulations around the Sabbath, these 39 laws and sub-laws and blah, blah, blah can be set aside in a pinch. Like, hey, let's set all that aside. Right now you're hungry. <laughs> if it can be doing that. If there's, and there's, but at the other, other hand, there's absolutely no place in the Bible where the moral law, the, you look at the other Ten Commandments, any of those laws can be set aside. There's no place God says, well, you're in a hurry, so go ahead and commit adultery. It's fine. You know. He doesn't say, hey, you're angry. Go ahead and steal or commit armed robbery. You, you, you didn't have enough in your wallet, so go ahead and do that. Never says that. So there's no place where God says that, where the moral law is set aside in a pinch. But the Sabbath, the ceremonial law here is set aside, just set aside. What does that mean, right? I mean, what is God saying? What is Jesus saying here? I mean, think of the reasoning that Jesus is trying to set before them. He's saying that the Sabbath commandment, though it is the, the binding that holds the ten together, it's also provisional, it's temporary. It's something that, until something else comes along that fulfills it, points to it, redeems it, and makes it obsolete, you practice, but that something in the presence of Jesus has just come. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus says in the very next verse, verse 5 of Luke 6, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He, he's saying, I mean, it's astounding when you think about it. 
on the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Like if you want rest, you want to really rest, that eternal inner murmur of, of self-reproach is just grinding you down to a pulp. If you, if you want rest, and you, but you, you can't rest, <laughs> you need to think about where you're going with your time. And, and if you think you've gone to Jesus and you still haven't ever experienced deep rest, you probably haven't gone to him. Because he is the Lord of Sabbath. It's that simple. Okay, so that's, let me, let me show you how this correlates with that Hebrews 4 passage I was telling you about. When the author of Hebrews is talking throughout the book of Hebrews, is basically describing to early Christians what it means to be a Christian. So Hebrews is all about what it means to be a Christian and what it means to believe in Jesus. And in verse, he, verse 9 of Hebrews 4, the author says this, There remains a rest for the people of God, for anyone who, through the gospel, through Jesus, enters that rest, rests from their work, just as God rested from his. And so let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. And this is kind of a complex statement, but it's amazing because this is what it means to be a Christian, okay? And there's actually a lot of ways you can put Christianity, but here's one way. A Christian is someone who's able to look at your, your work the way God looked at his. Able to look at your life the way God looked at his life. So look at your work the way God looked at his work in Genesis. It's very good. Look at your life the way Jesus looked at his life and say, hey, it's all good. It's all good. It's finished. You remember Jesus' last words? <laughs> it's finished. It's done. It's very good. You're being told right here that through Jesus, you can look at your life, you can look at yourself and say, it's absolutely satisfying. The moment I'm in, yeah, it's been a hard week. My marriage isn't going great. My kids are driving me crazy. My neighbor's dog keeps pooping on the lawn. It's all good. It's good. There's nothing else that needs to be done. I can step back because the work is finished. In other words, I put my faith in Jesus. I put my faith in him. And he, Hebrews is saying that through Jesus and only through Jesus, only through him will you get that deep satisfaction that will quiet, still, send away that eternal inner murmur. You'll only get it from Jesus. Not through Week in Hawaii, not, though I love these things and I'm not putting them down, not through watching, I'm going to watch the Ox today, not through a spa, not through a run around Green Lake. Those are all good, all important for work-life work balance. I think they're even good Sabbath practices, by the way, like watching the Seahawks. How many of you are going to watch the Seahawks today? Because it was a bye week. You need to, hopefully they'll win. You know, like, that's a good, I think that's a good Sabbath practice. That's restful. But they're not, it's not the ultimate source of rest. Do you hear me? Jesus is the Lord of Sabbath, not Russell Wilson. Jesus is the Lord of rest. He is the last word on rest. He's the ultimate source of rest. And so only through Jesus, when you give yourself to him in faith and rest in him and, and say, hey, it's enough, will you be able to look at yourself, look at your work, look at your family, look at your marriage and say, it's all good. It's finished. Everything that's necessary to be done has been done by Jesus. It's good. So let me ask you this question. What does it mean to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? What does it mean to, to rest in Christ? Because that's the key. That's the key. Now, some of us think it's just this. I'm going to try and be like Jesus. Like he, Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to boom, 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 boom. I'm going to do that stuff. And I'm just going to warn you right now, that will crush you. If you try and live the life of Jesus 
it will, you talk about the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach, man, try and live his life. He will wear you out. I mean, he's an amazing, he was an amazing, 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 amazing person. None of us could or should try and attempt to live his life. Uh, as one person, Richard uh, knows, once said that Christ is the only person to live the perfect Christian life. He's the only, he's really the only Christian out there. <laughs> when you think about it, we're, the rest of us are just moral failures, washed up, phoning it in, including me. And thus, to be a Christian, to receive his finished work, to rest in Christ is to say, I'm not going to rest on my work, but on his. I'm not going to, I'm going to rest on his finished work on the cross. I'm, I'm surrendering, as Dustin says, palms up. Not my will, not my plans, not my strength, his. Because, Jesus, because of him, living his life through, you can step back, cease striving, and just say, hey, <laughs> fill me, Jesus. Live your life through me. Express yourself through me. That, and that's, that's what Sabbath is. <laughs> that's what Sabbath is. It's just stepping back, saying, Jesus, live your life. So that's what it is. You know why we need it. Let's just talk for a moment here about how we observe it, okay? Because I think some handles, right? Okay, great. Love that you told me how, why I need it. Love you told me this whole thing about Jesus, but how do I do this then? Like, is this Sabbath? I, I don't, some of you, this is Sabbath. Uh, for others, it's not going to be the thing that really brings you rest. So look with me at Deuteronomy 5 real quick. And this is where the, like I said, the Sabbath commandments um, articulated twice. And in Deuteronomy 5, they're very different. It says this, observe the Sabbath, keep it holy. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On that day, don't do any work. Deuteronomy 5, 12 and verse 14. So the first thing you notice about doing the Sabbath or how to observe the Sabbath is, is, is there's two verbs there, observe and keep. In the original context, that's what it meant to do the Sabbath, observe and keep the day, okay? And those are active verbs. Like we don't think of observing as a real active thing. I'm like observing you. I'm observing, you know, we don't think of that as very active, but those are really active verbs. And so it's important to note that in their activeness, you're not just doing rules. You're not doing things, but you're observing and keeping a response to a reality that you're immersed in. Observe and keep the Sabbath to the Lord, okay? So it's about, I'm in a reality, to the Lord. It's that simple phrase, the day is set aside to the Lord. So observing and keeping what? The things that God has done. That's what the Sabbath has always been about, re rehearsing. What has God done? Who is God? Looking at his characteristics, looking at his deeds. Now here's where it gets really interesting in this Deuteronomy version because it actually articulates what God's done. So in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and outstretched arms. This is what God's done. Therefore keep the day as the Sabbath. Remember what God's done. Brought you out of slavery. So who is God? What has God done? God's the one who freed and redeemed the people of Israel from bondage. He spared their lives in the desert with manna. He delivered them. All these things, right? And the, the key here is this connection between Sabbath and redemption, okay? Like, it means that as we think about how to engage in Sabbath practices, Sabbath is about re restoration. It's, it's about renewal, about release, freedom. It's, that's the word I would give you for Sabbath. And so here's, here's put the cookies on the lower shelf. <laughs> uh, do things 
that bring you freedom. Now, it's interesting to me that we've associated the Sabbath with quite, with quite the opposite. I brought this other book up here with me. If you want a, a really good book on spiritual practices, it's kind of different. This book by Barbara Brown Taylor, Elizabeth and I have been reading this. It's called An Altar in the World. And she says this, man, if you're a certain age or raised in the South, some of you were, uh, then for all practical purposes, the commandment, Sabbath commandment might read this way. Remember the Sabbath and keep it boring, right? Remember that? Some of you know what I'm talking about. The Sabbath was the day you could not wear blue jeans, broke it, could not play ball, could not ride bikes, could not go to the movies, could not do anything but go to church in the morning and then again at night, with a wasteland in between during which old people with little hair left on their heads, but a great deal growing out of their ears, sat in rocking chairs talking about incredibly dull things, and you could not creep away for even a moment without them yelling at you, where, what are you doing in there? You know, <laughs> come back here and visit with your Uncle Lynch and Aunt Alma and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Sabbath is the day you could not. <laughs> Sabbath is the day you could not. And right, that's just so contradictory to what Deuteronomy says, because Sabbath is the day that God did, not the day you cannot. It's the day that God freed the people of God and wants to free you. And so this is, man, how might we flip the script on Sabbath and engage in practices that free us? And this is where that Luke 6 passage, one more time real quick, is so instructive. And I'd ask you, I'd invite you just to meditate on it throughout this week. Uh, Look at verse 3 and 4. You have David and his men eating this showbread, this crusty, not moldy, but it would be moldy here, you know, stale loaf of bread. They could have easily gotten food from a food truck around the corner. You know, like there's Lake City downtown. Why are you up here? My son does this every time we have communion. Just devours the rest of the communion bread. Just down in the juice. And I'm sure people are looking at me like, do you feed him? I'm like, yes, we try. But, you know, it's never enough. What's that about? I mean, he's hungry. I mean, have you, and so have you ever come forward for communion here? You know, it's not like we talk about it as a meal. But you're like, it's barely enough to even like... And it's like really sugary grape juice, you know? You know that it's not about getting fed in that way. That there's something deeper about this thing we're doing. That David is coming forward with his mighty men in the tabernacle. They eat the showbread, but there's something more than just physical hunger. And what I think is happening there is God is saying, do things that feed your soul. David wanted something. He wanted connection with God. At the intersection of communion with God and refreshment of your body, soul, and spirit, do do those things. So for me, like that's going up a mountain. Every time. I don't care if it's raining, snowing, sunny, hot, cold. Go, put me on a mountain, body, soul, spirit. I'm alive. Connect with God. Like the birds are tweeting. I'm just like, wow, God, this is amazing. But you can't always go to the mountains. So there's this bike ride I used to do. <laughs> but I go out through Edmonds up Innes Arden. If anybody knows Innes Arden, some of you know Innes Arden. And you get this view it doesn't even matter if it's cloudy or if it's clear. Clear days, the Olympics. Cloudy days, the sound and the ships going out. And I always stop and go, wow. Wow. Uh, and when I can't do that, <laughs> can't go for a hike, can't ride my bike, I go for a walk. Just walk. Like use your two legs, go around your neighborhood, and look at the trees right now. Uh, what about silence? <laughs> Do things at this connection of connection with God and, and deep 
revitalization of your spirit. What about silence? When's the last time you spent 10 minutes in silence and you weren't sleeping? And even for some of us, that's not the case. (laughs) You know, but 10 minutes. Not reading anything. Not listening to anything. Just silent. Communion with God. Refreshment of your soul. What about some, some music to flip that? But music that's not going to rock you out, you know, like, or background music, just something that's going to draw you into God's presence. What about making a meal? Like, literally just getting the food from the grocery store, coming home, cutting it up, making it. Like, wow, these tastes and these flavors. I think that's what Jesus is saying. He finds the things in your life that will you connect with me and be restored through doing. And do those things. There's not a list of rules for this. <laughs> Just find the things that God has designed you to do and do those. That's the first thing. Here's the last thing. Verse 10 of Luke 6, Jesus has brought this man who's got a withered hand. Go figure. And the man's hand is completely restored. Now, look at the various stories of Jesus' healing. And what you'll find is over and over and over again, he heals on the Sabbath. Over and over and over again, he heals on the Sabbath. And by the way, remember what I said, he's not allowed to do that. Can't do it unless the person's going to die. And none of the cases I found, the person was like on their deathbed. He heals the man with the unclean spirit in Mark 1. He heals Peter's mother-in-law who had a fever. He heals this man with, a, with her hand. He heals a lame man by the pool of Bethsaida who'd been crippled his whole life. He heals the man born blind. He heals a crippled woman. I mean, he keeps going. Sab- Sabbath healing was Jesus' favorite thing to do. It's like this, I think. I can just picture him laying there. Wakes up. Sun's coming up. Man, I hope God, I hope I can meet somebody who's really sick today. Like, I hope I can meet an addict, somebody who's just depressed, confused. Just send a really desperate person my way. I love to heal on the Sabbath. Now, how many of us have said that? <laughs> how many of you woke up this morning and said, send me a desperate person to church? Like a really desperate person. I doubt any of us did. Like we, have we ever woken up to that thought, God, lead me to someone who needs you. And because I, you live in me, you express your life through me, they need me. It's not you living Jesus' life. He's living his life through you. Who needs healing? Who needs restoration? Who needs deliverance? Open my heart to them. Make me available for them. Allow your Sabbath rest to to flow through me. Wake me up to that reality, Jesus. How many of us have ever said that? That brings us how Sabbath connects with intercessory prayer. Um, Praying for others is this weird thing. And I got this book once by Philip Yancey. I just brought it up. I'm not going to try and open it because my hand, I'll read it to you. Um, actually, I have to open it up because I deleted it. But he talks about praying for others, intercessory prayer. And he, he says this. This is, the be- this is the best book. Man, I'm like a book salesman today. This is the best book on prayer you can get, hands down, bar none. And he has this little thing on praying for others at the very end. And I've quoted this before, but he says this. I once envisioned praying for others as bringing requests to God that God may not have thought of yet. <laughs> and then talking God into granting them, Right? And now I see as intercession is an increase in my awareness. So when I pray for another person, I'm praying for God to open my eyes so that I can see that person as God does already and then enter into the stream of love that God already directs toward that person. 
Then he goes on to say, something happens to me when I pray in this way. I bring people into God's presence. It changes my attitude toward them. (laughs) It's an attitude issue, praying for others. Like, how many of us woke up this morning and said, God, give me somebody that needs you. It's an attitude problem. And I need an attitude correction. And Nancy says, hey, change your attitude. (laughs) Bring people into my presence. When I pray for people this way, it changes my attitude. It affects our relationship. I then can pray for my neighbor who's trying to sneak out of paying their share of taxes. (laughs) I can pray for my drug-addicted relative and see past their irresponsible behavior. That's killing them, destroying our family. In short, prayer this way allows me to see people as God sees me, as uniquely flawed, uniquely gifted, as a bearer of God's image. God sees you that way. (laughs) And he is inviting you through praying for others to begin to see others that way and just enter into the stream of his love that he directs toward all of us. And that, I don't know about you, but that sounds like rest. (laughs) Praying for others is just a posture of rest. Resting, entering into the stream of God's love, saying, God, how might I be an agent of healing in those people's lives? What if I were more available this coming week? And what if by praying for others, I was made more available? I just had more time in my calendar I knew what to do with. I don't know how it got there. (laughs) By paying attention to what God longs to do. So here's the response I want to invite you to this week. And I know kids are coming in, so this is great. Uh, two questions I just want to invite you to consider in the coming week. And they're, they're listed in your little bulletin. If you, if you didn't get a bulletin, grab one. But there's side-by-side lists here. And on the left side of that list, literally a question that says, what do I need to rest from? Um, I think it says that. I should probably pull mine out <laughs> so I get this right. Ah, what brings me life that I'm not doing? So those things I said, the guy coming in and eating the bread, connecting with God, what brings you life that you're not doing right now? Things you love, like I said, going for hikes, right? Bike rides, walks, silence, music. And just start listing those things, okay? Right side, who can I be praying for? And start listing names. Literally, as names come to mind, put them down. Just fill the list up, okay? That's it. That's your practice this week. What am I not doing that, I, that brings me life? Because all of us have stuff. Who can I be praying for? Now listen to this. As you list those things, don't resist your heart. When you look at the list, put it on your mirror, put it in your car, whatever. When your heart goes toward that list, you see a name. When your heart goes toward that person, pray. You can drive while praying. It's not like texting. You can do it. When your, your heart on the left side goes toward, man, a hike. Oh, a hike would be great this week. I think that would bring me some rest. I don't know. Call in sick. Do it. Go do it. Respond to that desire. Because I believe that God is inviting you to rest. And you're made for a rhythm of work and rest. And you'll find it when you begin to engage those things. You with me? Let's take a moment to pray. And I'll invite our worship leaders back up. God, thanks for uh, this challenging... Um, commandment. Uh, Thanks for how it convicts all of us in the room, God. We've wed ourselves to uh, doing all the time, and very, very seldom do we just stop doing. And so, God, as we're feeling all of us convicted at different levels, would you teach us, Jesus? Um, Would you show us your life? Would you 
as I even said, express your life through us. And would you just fill our lives, God, where we feel weak right now, would you bring strength? Where we feel joyless around our work, would you bring some confidence and joy and clarity, God? And where there are spaces to go and find things and engage in those things that bring us life, would you show us that way? And thanks for a community that encourages us toward this life. To that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.